If you are vulnerable to psychic damage from roguish language, stay away from these gibbering mouths. But if you intend on listening to this podcast about enriching your fantastical group hallucinations, you're too far gone already. Your next game is going to be confoundingly satisfying, and here's why. In this episode, we find some answers to how can we make players feel like excellent detectives with the clues we give? And what can we do with spells that threaten a good mystery? And what traits can we use for our detectives that are inspired by the greats? Welcome to the Hook and Chance podcast. I'm Travis. And I'm his brother, Jordan. The first thing that I have to say is something that adds on to last week's episode. You just couldn't get enough of last week's episode. Yeah, specifically looking into interrogation techniques, which is a terrible dark path, I know, but hear me out. (laughs) I wanted to expand on that niceness technique that we were talking about. Okay. Be nice to the person you're trying to get information out of. I'm assuming that you have some kind of proof to back this up? Yes, and the proof comes from someone that you wouldn't expect to be nice, Hans Scharf a World War II Nazi interrogator. (laughs) Sorry, this is the example I found. Oh, no. But he was very good. He got the information he wanted out of 480 of the 500 people he interrogated. Okay, that's pretty good track record from a very unfortunate person. Yes, and one of his top five techniques in that niceness category was pretend to be a know-it-all and let them correct you. Say the wrong information and let them jump in with the right stuff once you've become kind of friends. So that's that age-old rule of the internet. If you want a correct answer, just post the wrong one. Exactly. Wow. Okay. Works in every situation, apparently. Yeah, your Google search history is, again, a terrifying place to be. You've got Nazi interrogator research and uh, interrogation techniques in general. Your Google search is like how to not torture someone and how to get answer from person that won't tell me. And don't forget how to create explosives. That's in there somewhere too because of one of our episodes. We're not bad people. We're just inquisitive. Like a good detective. (laughs) Thanks for bringing that back around. So... We know how to plan a fantastic mystery with all of the suspects now, uh, with the twists and the turns in our story beats. But the last thing that you want to do is stall out mid-mystery because you forgot about certain details that you got to plan for a bit when you're running a story like this. And this has all come about because, I mean, we've just, again, been immersed in mysteries for the last couple of weeks, whether it's talking to our good friend GM Tim about how mysteries should be structured, and we got into some really cool conversations around that to even some of the folks on our Discord channel, in particular Scotty, about what to do about players that have a passive investigation of 23 or some (laughs) unbelievable number, and how do you deal with that in terms of uh, running a mystery? So just to cover what we've gone over... The first episode in this series was world building a mystery where you flesh out the main hero, the antagonist, the antagonist's goal, their plan, and the suspects. And then episode two, planning a mystery. 
Uh, so going through all of the story beats. So what's the setup and what is the crime and how do you go about investigating? And then, of course, how do you conclude that all in a big epic showdown and a, and a plot twist trap? And finally, this episode, which is the third running a mystery where we're going to talk about handling clues and handling spells that might come up that you're not expecting and generally just avoiding disaster that can strike when running a mystery. So let's get to it over in the strategy stateroom. This is the strategy stateroom where inventive and cunning tactics are crafted for when they're needed most. All right, so we're going to get started with breaking down all of the different steps about running that mystery. So handling the clues, dealing with some of the spells that come up, and avoiding disaster in your running of that game. Because as we've already kind of mentioned, a mystery can fall apart real quick if you didn't think of something ahead of time. Yeah, If you want to stick to that typical feel of a mystery, there are certain things that you obviously have to avoid because just like a just kind of a shitty movie where you're like, that didn't end well. (laughs) Your mystery can end like that, too, if you're not careful. A mystery is all about that reveal. Okay, so that first step, handling the clues. I think it's kind of important to define what a clue is in D&D so that we can use them properly. So a clue is evidence at the scene of the crime. That's pretty simple. People investigating the scene of the crime are doing so incredibly actively, looking for every last bit of information they can find to solve this mystery. Yeah, so you're pouring through that photo box and you're looking under in between the the uh, the mattress and the box spring, yeah. <laughs> looking for all of the hidden little gems. You're pulling out drawers. You're you're. It's not the same as just like wandering through a dungeon. <laughs> That's the understatement of the year. (laughs) Well, I'm just making the clarification. Fair enough. But in that, you're going to uncover a lot of things, and some are going to be completely irrelevant, and then some are going to stand out. And I don't know, I feel like there's something to that with the, you know, this is mundane. This is stuff that we expect somebody to have, And then this is what stands out. And that's what's the clue. And that's what you as a player are really looking for. Yeah. And almost anyone that's doing that looking is going to find those out of place things. So when you think of a detective, a good detective is not going to miss any clues at the scene of the crime. Yeah. This is finding that one stray blonde hair in a room that nobody has blonde hair like that's why you can find minute details and clues because they stand out amongst all of the normal that should be on that scene and highlighting that and emphasizing that is really critical when you're running uh, like a clue finding section of your game and then the detective not only finds all of those little clues but they make the connections between them and figure out the context behind them you know, in a typical mystery, all of the police at the scene just say like, oh, yeah, case closed. <laughs> Meanwhile, the detective is trying to think of all the possible reasons a clue is there, not just the most obvious. Yeah. And that leads to talking about how we want to imagine the player characters in these scenes. Do we want to imagine them as half decent detectives or do we want to imagine them as bumbling 
characters that would give the scene a quick glance and say, well, did my best. Well, I suppose that's up to the player and the kind of character that they built, but whether or not they're bumbling, of course. However, we would like to think of any character that our players have created as exceptional because that's why they're adventurers. That's why they're the focal point of the story. So they should be pretty, pretty sharp. And in a mystery story, you're not highlighting their physical prowess and their fighting ability anymore. You're highlighting their ability to be a good detective. The detective is the badass hero in a mystery. Yeah, where you might describe a player doing a backflip onto something as really exceptional with an acrobatics role, with an investigation role, we also want to really highlight how clever they are and how deep and immaculate attention to detail they're all of a sudden having and displaying. Yeah, that's cool. So all of this is to say that we think there's another way of handling clues in a mystery. You can totally go down the route of, you know, make an investigation check and find those clues. Yeah, that's how it's normally done. But there's a way that we found to be really fun, which is if there's a clue, it's found by simply looking for it. Unless your character's got a five perception, they're going to find the muddy boot that doesn't belong there. Well, the characters are there trying to solve something. If my characters are sprinting through a dungeon and they roll a quick investigation check, sure, by all means, they're they're moving quick. Yeah. And they may or may not notice the tripwire. That's the typical use of investigation, but specifically when you're running a mystery, the characters are on the scene of the crime. They're looking for clues, and they're not going to stop until they find one. So like you're saying, the clue is there, and they will yeah. find it, <laughs> no matter what. The danger of not doing that, though is that the player's role, they don't find it, and your mystery will literally fall apart. Right there. Yeah. If they don't find... If everyone rolls super low at that critical moment of investigating the crime scene, oh, well... <laughs> That's it. <laughs> Let's go to the tavern and get shittered. And you've got, you've got really those two options, and that's it. So it's better, in this case, to just explain that the players find clues. Here are the clues. You've all gone onto the scene. You started to investigate. Uh, so-and-so finds this clue. You find this clue. Great. Because your alternative is literally somebody rolls, and again, they a bunch of people roll low. It's miraculous that, yeah, they just twos and fives abound. And you set the DC as 15. Like, you have to roll above a 15 or you don't find the clue, well, when that doesn't happen, you're forced to either give it to them, in which case it feels like a gift from the DM and they don't feel heroic, <laughs> or you just stop the adventure. And like you say, you just go to the tavern. Yeah, that's it. Buy some comic books and sit under the old oak tree. I guess we whiffed on solving that murder. <laughs> Next adventure, please, dungeon master. <laughs> And these scenes, if you do it this way, these scenes can be pretty narrative and character driven because it doesn't have to be simply like, oh, my character goes in and looks around. You find all the clues. It can be my character is going to check out the desk drawers. My character is going to check under the bed so that, yeah, like you said, the characters can be finding different clues. And if players aren't doing that by themselves and describing what they're investigating at a scene, just do it for them. Yeah, you check under here and you find this. Very cool. That's it. Now my character can be more involved in finding the meaning behind that clue. And that's the next step. 
So first of all, each clue is going to suggest something at face value. To borrow the clue from our example that we've had running throughout these episodes, we have our murder victim and they had a, a scarf from an ex. So you've got this bloodstained scarf that was clearly not a thing of this bartender, like wasn't want to carry a scarf on the day to day. It's kind of fancier, more elaborate. Yeah. The obvious implication is that this belongs to the murderer. Right. It wasn't the victims. Somebody else was here and somebody else murdered them. So this is where your actual investigation role comes in, correct? Yeah. So your character is standing there holding the bloodstained scarf and they're looking for the hidden detail of the scarf or the clue. What is going to be determined by that clever detective? That's outside of the assumption that everyone else has made. Yeah. So in this one, we've got that hidden detail is everyone just says, oh, well, like this person didn't really own this scarf, um, but it is now covered in blood. This must be left by the murderer. Who knows who that is? And your party then turns it over and investigates and finds uh, a card in a book, an inscription on the scarf that says, stay warm, my love, or something like that. And it's it, it's got a message from the ex. So it probably wasn't the murderer's scarf. It was someone close to the NPC. And now we have a clue. We have a lead to follow up on. And that's what makes that investigation so powerful. And, and so if your character's investigation role is successful, they figure out that hidden detail. If it's not successful, that's where you have some kind of a follow-up very loosely planned. Okay. So what's our follow-up in this case? So they don't end up finding the card that says, enjoy the scarf, sincerely, so-and-so, that leads them to believe that this is, in fact, a, a clue that isn't directly related to the murderer. So yeah, if they fail that role, I, as the DM, could say, you could check in with the vendor in town that sells finer materials and fabrics. They don't make a lot of sales. There we go. So you know that you can follow up with them and see who might own this scarf and they'll give you the answer to the clue just the direct answer to say oh i recognize this scarf yes i made this for so-and-so yeah and now no matter what your party is investigating they're either incredibly talented. talented on the scene or they're just brilliant at following up clues they will inevitably solve this crime and feel like a cool detective in doing so yeah, I dig that because there is nothing worse than not really knowing what to do when your players don't get a particular thing that you're trying to lay down. So you've got a clue, there's an implication and a hidden detail and a follow-up just in case things go south to every one of the clues that you're planning out. And there's some other really good benefits to this way of investigating clues because if you've got a ticking clock involved in the story like we were talking about the last episode a time crunch gotta move fast then actually getting those clues on the scene is much more meaningful and having to follow each one up adds to the pressure of that clock yeah yeah the killer is gonna strike again unless you solve this but having to run all over town and follow up on the your backup plan for every <laughs> single clue that's not great but rolling really well on the scene and they get the whole picture off the get-go and they know exactly who they have to go and question next yeah and by the way i think you need the music from catch me if you can in your mystery <laughs> just realized <laughs> nice yeah the intro music the yeah. 
Oh yeah, <laughs> that was good. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. Yeah, you got a good memory for that stuff. Okay, so how do we handle the damn spells that D and D introduces? Confounded once again by those players. Yeah, this is a legitimate concern that I hear a lot. Uh, like if you if you skim through any Reddit posts on mysteries, you're gonna find people who's like, "Well, you can." Sp- Speak with dead. Have you ever thought of that? Just question the corpse. Yeah. So, and so many DMs struggle with this. I do. And I yeah. I found so many questions on Reddit too, just saying like, what do I do? <laughs> well, unless you're playing in a low magic world, you kind of just have to embrace it. Absolutely. Like you can't just shut it down hard. You kind of have to aim for that. It works to an extent, but here's the downside. Yeah. So how do we factor that in? to our game well if you're already running a mystery similar to the way we've put forward it already takes into consideration how some of these spells could be used to get information because you've only got one suspect and they're the very least likely guilty party who knows anything about the actual antagonist so if you're using all of your intense information gathering spells on everybody else they're just giving you their slice of the mystery what you would have gotten through a good conversation anyways i see Yeah. And if you're truly worried about spoiling the mystery, make that key suspect a little bit harder to get to for now. You're not cutting them off, but you're just saying like, that's the one that's going to take you the most time. Yeah. So we need an example of how using some of these spells doesn't spoil your entire mystery. Well, like we were talking about. So if you've got three suspects and your antagonist. Yeah. Suspect one leads to two, two leads to three, three leads to the antagonist. Okay. So if you're using these spells on either of the first two suspects, they're just leading you to the next step of the mystery if you throw everything you have at them. Fair enough. They're not telling you the plot. They don't know the plot. They don't know the antagonist. (laughs) Yeah, and that's what's so helpful about using those suspects in this particular way is that, yes, if any one of them knew who the murderer was, the jig would be up as soon as you used Speak With Dead or Zone of Truth. But because they only hold a piece of the puzzle, there's only so much that they can still gather and your mystery continues unabated. And here we're talking about relatively low level spells. I know that there's some crazy ones when you get higher that you're going to have to do a lot more strategizing for. I mean, I don't know how to counter the wish spell in a mystery. (laughs) God, if your players are just running around with wish spells. Oh, God help you. You're playing on a different tier. Yeah. I think you can also throw in some different complications to using those spells, like uh, low magic worlds. Absolutely. That's an easy way to take care of this, because if they exist in that kind of a world, everyone's going to have some pretty big problems with having their minds invaded and having zones of truth cast and having zombies pop up. That's totally fair. Is like... For example, the whole zombie thing like this makes me think of that sci fi Tom Cruise flick Minority Report, which is like, sure, we're using this like predictive model to foil crimes that have not yet happened. There's a little bit of a moral implication in there that might not go over well with everybody. Same thing like you're saying. 
the morality of bringing a murder victim back <laughs> from the dead for a moment. Painfully ripping their spirit back into the world. Dear Lord, <laughs> if you have any cleric anywhere, they should probably have a problem with this. And if you don't have a cleric in the party, there's probably one in town that's, you know, giving last rites or something to this poor murdered soul. And then all of a sudden your hero party comes in is just like, <laughs> by the way, you're live. And when you go report that to the equivalent of your town sheriff, it's like, okay, we figured this out. Yeah. How'd you uh, come to that conclusion? We ripped a soul back into the world. <laughs> okay. Get in the prison cell. And uh, <laughs> yeah, we got issues. Things like zone of truth, even. That one in particular, there's a reason that police detectives can't beat people within an inch of their lives to get the truth out of them, because maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. But either way, just solid detective work is the way you should go about some of these investigations. Yeah. And so, I don't know, maybe there's a town charter that says you can't cast zone of truth on one another, because if it's a high magic world... And everyone's just going around casting Zone of Truth and is like, I actually didn't like your pie. And the read thoughts spell. Yeah. <laughs> like, please don't. Stop doing that. Stop detecting my thoughts. Yeah. Because there are some kinky <laughs> ideas going through my head on any given day. That's a terrible world to live in. <laughs> yeah. When every neighbor knows all the perverted stuff that they've got percolating in their brain. The town creep is just sitting outside your window looking in. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> Detecting your thoughts while I touch my nips. <laughs> Anyways. Uh, yeah. Then beyond that, there's other ways that you can specifically kind of counter some of these spells, too. So let's go back to Speak with Dead. Again, just as a recap, Speak with Dead is a level three necromancy spell. It's an action. You can cast it within 10 feet. You need to burn some incense. It lasts for about 10 minutes. And so you can grant the semblance of life and intelligence to a corpse of your choice within range, allowing it to answer the questions you pose. The corpse must still have a mouth and can't be undead. The spell fails if the corpse was the target of the spell within the last 10 days. You Until the spell ends, you can ask the corpse up to five questions. It only knows what it knew in life. It only knows the languages it knew. Uh, the answers are usually brief, cryptic, or repetitive. And the corpse is under no compulsion to offer a truthful answer if you are hostile to it or it recognizes you as an enemy. So, I mean, this is obviously not a you can do whatever the hell you want with this thing. There's so many stipulations in there. And that's with good reason. Yeah. It's for exactly these kind of scenarios. So Speak With Dead is not the free pass that a lot of players <laughs> think it is. Yeah. Number one, if they didn't see their killer, they won't be able to straight up accuse their killer. Fair point. If you're in a magic rich world, the original investigators of the scene probably already used the spell within and the last 10 days if it's been past 10 days you better be in a morgue because that body's getting stinky <laughs> nobody likes to cast spells on stinky bodies <laughs> and i'm not a huge fan of removing the abilities of a spell but if this corpse would simply have too much information and the murderer knew that then they removed the mouth ew yeah but that's a good point. If I'm trying to get away with murder and I know that this spell exists, yeah. I'm going to cover my tracks. 
And at least then you know it's a murder. It ain't somebody <laughs> that ripped off their jaw yeah. and decided to lay down. So what about Zone of Truth? So Zone of Truth is another 10-minute spell, level 2 enchantment. You create a magical zone that guards against deception in a 15-foot radius sphere. Until the spell ends, a creature that enters the spell's area makes a charisma saving throw or can't speak a deliberate lie while in the radius. You know whether each creature succeeds or fails on its saving throw. And that's a really important point, is that there's a saving throw involved. Again, this is not a catch-all. Yeah, it's not a guaranteed win. And beyond that, like if somebody's trying to be shifty, they can do that while still telling the truth. If people can beat lie detectors, then people can beat zone of truth. Yeah. It just takes a shifting of your language. The spell is only a foolproof option for creatures that maybe fear the repercussions of having someone know they're hiding the truth. Ah. Like if they're trying to hide the truth and they just don't want you to know their secrets, easy peasy. But if they're afraid of you knowing that they're hiding the truth, this is going to be a a more interesting option. Absolutely. Like, I can just clam right up. I don't have to talk. Yeah, that too. And this spell is completely out the window if the antagonist has pulled the make the party the suspects trick. You can't just go around town zone of truthing people. (laughs) They're just going to say, get out of here, you murderers. Yeah, fair enough. And then the the final one that throws a lot of mysteries, a curveball, is Detect Thoughts. So this is a second level divination spell. There is obviously some verbal material and somatic components to it. And for the duration, you can read the thoughts of certain creatures. When you cast the spell as an action on each turn until the spell ends, you can focus your mind on any one creature that you can see within 30 feet of you. If the creature you choose has an intelligence of three or lower, it doesn't speak any language. So here's the big stuff. You initially learn the surface thoughts of the creature, what is most on its mind in that moment. And then as an action, you can shift your attention to another creature's thought or attempt to probe deeper into that same creature's mind. And then, of course, they get saving throws. If you probe deeper, the target must make a wisdom saving throw. If it fails, you gain insight into its reasoning, its emotional state, or something that looms large in its mind. Such Sounds as like a murder. Something it worries over, right? <laughs> yeah, like, this is exactly what we're talking about. And then if, it's, if it succeeds, the spell ends. That's it. So your players are probing deeper into these characters' minds, and they're automatically stuck at surface level unless they're willing to try to get those deep, dark secrets of one of the characters. And at which point, either way, the target knows that you're probing into its mind. Oh, and that is not always a comfortable position. Really, the only time you can get away with this is when you've got the subject in an interrogation room. Yeah. Like when you really want to be blatant. And I think one of the most important restrictions there is that its duration is only a minute Mm. you've got 10 rounds to use this spell to check out different people's surface thoughts that's it and if you're just having a conversation in real time that's hardly any time at all yeah one minute how much can you really gain in one minute yeah so either you've got millicent 
in your party sitting on the sidelines, holding their temples like Professor <laughs> X, just grunting and groaning while they try to penetrate and dig deep into the mind of the suspect that you're trying to like casually interrogate. <laughs> like that's that's going to be kind of evident. Leading them with casual questions. So, you know, any murders recently? <laughs> Have you ever thought of committing murders? <laughs> If there was one person that has pissed you off that you wish would disappear, who would that be? <laughs> and I, as a DM, I think you also shouldn't give away too much with those surface thoughts. You know, this spell kind of leans towards encouraging that deeper probe. There could be so many surface thoughts, whether it be sensory input, like, oh, mosquito in my ear. <laughs> like, there's so many little things. Sounds, aches in their body. I do not want to know what your surface thoughts are. They are probably maddening. They would drive me nuts in five minutes or less. Right now, for example, I'm just looking at the grass, looking at the sign outside, wondering why it's a sign about kids playing. Failing your pained leg. Yeah, that's always throb, throb. That's my surface thought. <laughs> throb, throb, throb. <laughs> and of course, this is a fun time to pepper in the NPC's judgments of the player characters. Oh, that's good. This hoity asshole yeah. <laughs> thinks that they know better than me. They suck at investigating anyways. What's with those eyebrows? <laughs> Don't look at me when you say that. <laughs> anyways, on to the final little bit here. Uh, avoiding disaster. How do you avoid disaster when running a mystery? And there's just a couple of pitfalls that you really have to keep a wide berth around. Absolutely. And we've kind of danced around these, but there's some tropes that really suck the energy out of a mystery. And a lot of these happen in the climax, like when everything's finally revealed. And if your reveal leaves everyone at the table just kind of looking at each other like, what? <laughs> what happened? Yeah. This is all leading towards this? <laughs> Why have we done this? Yeah. This was a waste of time. So the first dangerous trope is the dog was the mastermind. <laughs> That's when the villain makes no sense whatsoever. It was a random character that couldn't have even been guessed at. Yeah. It's a hyper-intelligent dog that's been watching the party from the alleyway. <laughs> and really, this is like any creature that the players couldn't have seen coming from a mile away. An NPC that hasn't been introduced or, yeah. And that's why, it, like we discussed in our last episode, that, you know, in our example, the mayor is the one that's responsible for this, uh, this whole mystery that we've concocted. But we have to introduce that mayor at the very beginning. Even if it's just a, a very short interaction, the players have to be aware of who the, the killer is or who and, the target, their antagonist is. And perhaps if the party is struggling a little bit, and perhaps throw him in again in a couple of just like minor scenes where he's wondering the status or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Then there's another trope that really irks me. This one, this one I really hate. It is the act of God, the gimme that just drops into the lap, the deus ex machina of, well, my players are never going to figure this mystery out, so... uh the a key falls out of the sky, and that was the key to this chest, and there we go. We're done. You did it. You did it. Uh, the players are never going to feel accomplished when anything feels 
like they didn't find it or they didn't lead their actions didn't cause this to happen. And that usually happens at that point where the players are kind of struggling. And as the DM, it's natural, like you want things to continue. So you throw one of those at them. But all it does is make them feel like everything they've done up to this point has been pointless in solving the mystery. And there's honestly been only one hint at this that I thought was done well. And that was in the movie Seven, where the killer, spoiler alert. <laughs> Pretty old movie. Yeah. Get on I, it. I think we're past the statute of limitations on uh, on spoilers <laughs> on Seven. Uh, but where the killer gives themselves up at the end. That felt very gimme. That felt very deus ex machina of like, well, they're trying to hunt down these two detectives. These tough cops are trying to find this deranged killer. And just as they're getting close, the killer gives themselves up. That's a perfect example of a gimme. And the only reason that worked was because there was more mystery just after that. Yeah. And that was kind of used with its intention. But anything short of that... And this is going to feel so gut-wrenching to not have any involvement in the reconciliation or the solving of a particular mystery. It instantly turns it from what feels like an open mystery to what feels like you've been railroaded the whole time with one move. Yeah, and all of my actions meant nothing. Yeah. And the final one is the victim that nobody gave a shit about in the first place. This one's kind of challenging because, of course, you know, this can happen in a, in a whole bunch of different ways. And yes, if if a crime has befallen somebody, we should probably want to solve it for justice. However, your adventurers are not going to feel good about solving a crime when the evil, uh, well, for instance, our town mayor. Like, what if our town mayor said... My jewel's been stolen, my fancy pocket watch, and I'm going around treating everyone in town like shit, but I'm going to hire you to... Like, the players don't care. And the same thing if that person, uh, you know, as tragic, truly tragic as it is, if that terrible person who made everybody's lives miserable were to die the next day, don't ask the party to try and solve that mystery. Like, we need empathetic people to kick us all into some kind of action to say, no, this is an injustice and we need to get to the bottom of it. Yeah. And that just kind of goes back to relating it to your characters, relating it to your world. Make it matter. Relate it to that NPC hero if we can't do either of the previous two. Yeah. So hopefully that helps you avoid disaster and run a better mystery without having to worry about the spells, about the pitfalls, about any of the other nonsense that can potentially come up during playing through that mystery. Absolutely. And Travis is putting the final touches on our mystery resource. Oh my God, don't overpromise. It's been so much work. <laughs> That'll be on our website uh, at some point. <laughs> uh, we should probably just stick a date. Otherwise, you know, it could take forever. However, we will get it up. I will get it up. On August third. I'm sorry. What, what was that name? Eleventeenth. Eleventeenth. All right. So that will be available at some point for you to use to help plan out some of these mysteries. Keep checking back. Check out the resources page for other stuff that's on Hook and Chance. 
com. Every hour on the hour, which Jesus. helps out. No, <laughs> thank you. Page numbers. You can fuck right <laughs> off with that. But let's, uh, le- before you start committing me to some kind of timeline, <laughs> let's move on to our second segment, Grandma Bee's Schoolhouse. Here we come, Grandma. Folks come here to Grandma Bee's Schoolhouse to gain knowledge and apply the history of their realm. All right, so what are you taking us through? Okay, well, I wanted to jump to the other side of the table and create some characters inspired by detectives. Oh, that led me to thinking about what kind of traits would my detective have. So if I want to build a detective-like character, I need something to go off of. I would go to the first character that I could possibly think of, which is Sherlock Holmes. But I, I as a player, don't just want to play a carbon copy of Sherlock Holmes. And I don't know how many players have probably done that out in the world. Right. I said, I'm making a, a rogue investigator. With Sherlock Holmes' signature deerstalker hat and a long pipe. Like, those aren't the details that are going to make you feel like Sherlock Holmes. Not the traits that you want to build into your character. So what could we do? So we can make our detective analytical and creative at the same time. So it's super easy to think that Sherlock Holmes is just like a robotic analytical mind, which he is. But that's just step one of his process. The way that he investigates, which I think is another thing to take from him, boils down to these steps. He collects all the evidence at the scene. He then determines what is a fact and what is not. Mm. So like a boot print is a fact. Someone saying they saw boot prints is not a fact. Cool. Okay. And he only works off of the facts. Yeah. He throws everything else out when it comes time to move to step three, which is creatively combining the facts into possible theories, drawing on his experience and knowledge. And if you know his stories, this is that moment where he sits down with his pipe and just focuses in. Yeah. Starts gripping through all of the clues in his head, laying out all the facts. And again, like we were talking about, once you remove all of the impossible, what's left is your answer. At this point, he usually asks Watson to shut the hell up because he needs time to just sit there and think. Yeah. Cool. And finally, he acts on the most likely theories. Another cool trait of his is focused. He's incredibly mindful and focused on everything that he does. That's why he's able not only to see things, but observe them, as he points out to Watson very often when he asks Watson how many steps are in their house and he doesn't know. And Sherlock says, that's because I observe things. I don't just see them. He makes connections faster than anyone else. Then we've got his curiosity. When he does observe things, if he can't figure out their meaning immediately, he just butts in and asks a question about that thing. Yeah. He's got that hunger for all of the little details. He wants to know even the stuff that doesn't necessarily seem like it's important because it may be or it may not be, but he's going to sift through that all later. But he has to have that deep, deep curiosity to even ask those questions in the first place. And it might not even relate to his case. Like he's curious about people, even though it might not seem like he is. Mm. And that kind of leads to the final trait which is he's rude (laughs) because he's so curious. He doesn't care if his questions are tactless. They're just there to satisfy his curiosity. He values his work and his personal reputation over any relationship in his life. Cool. I like that. So if you want to build a detective as a player, don't build a Sherlock Holmes clone. (laughs) Just build your character you know, with the same trait system that we're always talking about on the show, you know, you pick 
five different traits and you build your character around those. So these traits would be focused, curious, rude, and analytical or creative? Yeah. I mean, that is two traits, but I think they're tied together in the case of Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. So, yeah, five five traits. And if you use those traits instead of Sherlock Holmes, you're going to come up with an original character that has all kinds of interesting details and things that make them unique. But that's a literary character. That's a character that we all know. People might catch on that you've basically (laughs) built a Sherlock Holmes. So what are some other traits that we could potentially use? Well, to answer that, I took a look into the real world, which is a place that I like to come back to once in a while. (laughs) When fantasy tires. (laughs) And drew some inspiration from a real detective, Ira L. Cooper. So he became a police officer in 1906. First of all, Detective Cooper is a cool name. Hell yeah. I like Detective Cooper. (laughs) So Detective Cooper became a police officer in 1906, and... He became the first black detective sergeant on the force. Wow. Then he became the first black lieutenant, but he got where he was because he was known for always cracking the case and totally had a 33-year career on the force. Holy shit. Cool. So you've discovered some traits from Cooper. Yeah. Kind of derived a few from his story. Number one, he was decisive. He understood the importance of following his leads super quickly. So here's a little case for you that he cracked. The Easton Taylor Trust Company was held up in 1931. The robbers got away with 6300 bucks, which with today's inflation equates to $106,000. Ooh, that's a, a pretty hefty sum. Yeah. And the only details he had about the case was that they were black suspects. They had plates from Illinois. And with that, he determined that they'd likely be in a hotel. He quickly narrowed it down further to those at the time that allowed black guests. Within three hours, he had the suspects in custody. Jeez, three hours after a robbery. Yeah, and they got away clean. Wow. He was thorough. He cracked the case when no one else could, I've already mentioned. And that comes from this case where someone had taken $20,000 in American Express money orders. Again, back in 1924, that's the equivalent of about $300,000 today. (laughs) (laughs) The bank had done internal investigations and come up with nothing. The police had already looked into it. Nothing. Sounds like an inside job to me. Damn right. So finally, they put Detective Cooper on the case. There had been one suspect the police had already arrested and let go, James Reed. They had no leads on him whatsoever. And like you just suggested, inside case. So Ira has this guy followed, finds out a few of his regular spots, learns that he's got a gambling problem. One of Detective Cooper's inside officers gets in close, starts gambling with the guy, becomes buds, found out his nickname was the crapshooting fool. (laughs) Okay. He's starting to put the pieces together yet? Yeah, I I think he's in deep, deep debt, and he (laughs) robbed his own bank. So he also found out, through his sources, that the money orders were being cashed in Chicago. So he he noticed the suspect regularly communicating with Chicago by telegram. He intercepted the telegrams, which proved hands down that the man was guilty. Talk about a communication that is traceable. Like a telegram. (laughs) Somebody hands you a little postcard that says what's written because somebody Morse coded it across the country. And it's like, I'm going to find that paper trail. Here's the card that says what the message was. I got him. A little easier than uh, (laughs) recording today. Yeah. So they track him down. He's in a woman's house where they find him in the basement shooting dice on his knees. (laughs) All right. True to form. 
So they never tracked down the money orders, but $6,000 worth were cashed, which left the remaining 14000 supposedly burned when the culprits thought they were getting into trouble. Yeah, right. Those are stashed somewhere for sure. Yeah, let's find them. <laughs> Next, we've got the fact that he was a connected man. Another case with Jacob Hoffman, a bookmaker, was kidnapped by the Gas House gang. One of Ira's many sources, upon which he often drew his information, gave him a tip about the house that this guy was being held in. So while the other detectives on the force were chasing down their stupid leads, Cooper staked out the house by himself. A few days in, he saw a man being taken out of the house, driven around, and brought back. He was following his gut. He thought it was Hoffman, so he planned himself a raid. He goes back and gets a team of 16. He had Hoffman rescued while the other detectives were still getting warmed up. Like, when he got back, he's like, cracked it. Got him. The rest are just like, huh? I just started reading. <laughs> That's awesome. He was disarming. Ooh. The way he came across, he was described as a slow-moving, soft-spoken man. Not somebody that immediately strikes you as a cunning detective, which my guess is it helped him get a lot of information that he needed in cases. So he's kind of pulling a Columbo. Like, he doesn't seem like the person that's going to crack this case. So he can come up, question whoever he wants, and people are going to doubt yeah. that he's the one that's going to bring him down. He's not on to me. Yeah, nice. And finally, he was confident. He told society who he was. So the Police Relief Association existed at the time to provide pensions to retired members and their potential widows if anything happened to the officers. Okay. When the 20 black members of the force put in their applications to this association, they responded by saying, you can join, but you have to waive your right to vote in the association elections. Wow. Classic shittiness right there. Holy hell. Well, to that, at the time, a Sergeant Cooper sent a letter to the association making clear that he would not accept these modifications. I quote from his letter, I cannot stultify the pride and manhood I possess, nor can I humiliate my family and my friends by signing an instrument which sacrifices every vestige of my manhood and makes me a cringing, craven thing unworthy of contact with men. Damn! A giant F.U. to their attempts. Oh, man. I'm fucking jacked. That is so <laughs> cool. Yeah, that is the, the most eloquently worded <laughs> suck my butt that has ever been written. That is so cool. Yeah. So overall, bit of a badass. So some of those traits again. Let's, let's recap them of Detective Ira Cooper. Uh, you've got... He was decisive, he was thorough, he was well-connected, he was disarming, and he was really goddamn confident. Oh, book him. I, I, <laughs> I want to make a new character now. That was so good. Awesome. Well, we hope you've enjoyed our series on mysteries. It's over. The last three weeks of mysteries <laughs> is over. This feels weird. I felt like we were turning into a mystery-based podcast. That's fair, but it's back to thinking about dumb stuff. <laughs> And weird monsters. Uh, before we go, <laughs> uh, we have one more. A wonderful review to read off. Came from Infinity Circuit on Reddit, who said, This was a totally random find and a really good DMing interview for those DMs out there that struggle to find good world-building methods. Getting players into your world can be the hardest part of the job as a DM. Turning them from murder hobos into actual contributing members of the world can be difficult. I'm not normally much of a podcast guy, but this one caught my attention. Well, 
Thank you, Infinity Circuit. And this this review particularly caught my eye. So thank <laughs> you. I'm glad we found each other. Yeah. Infinity Circuit. Uh, yeah. Thank you very much for the wonderful words. Thanks again to GM Tim, who actually played with us last night. Uh, stopped by our place here in Kelowna, in Canada, and uh, and ran a game for us and also called us out <laughs> on not on not giving credit. So this is your credit, Tim. But uh, no, but seriously, thank you very much. Uh, it was all of our conversations around mysteries that really kicked this thing off and had us asking, how the hell do you write a good mystery? Absolutely. And thanks for that game last night. It was ridiculous over the top insane amount of laughs as we uh pulled off a heist (laughs) and if you want to listen to that game it was quite a riot it was super weird it was off the wall batty uh but we recorded the entire thing and we just threw it up on our patreon so do not expect the level of quality that you're hearing right now it is not that we just slapped a phone down and we got into a game and we played it like it should be played and it was a ton of fun and we played some pretty weird and and wacky characters so uh yeah you can find that on our patreon for uh any of our our patrons Thanks, as always, to Tabletop Audio for the sound effects you hear in this episode. You can follow us or give us more shout-outs or love at Hook and Chance on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Reddit. You can join an awesome community of players and DMs that are chatting on our Discord. We're now doing a video hangout every second Thursday, so if you want to talk D&D, there's no specific regimented schedule. Well, what we're trying to do on those is really talk about some of the stuff that's uh hanging up in your game whether you're a player you're a dm and you need some help you need some brainstorming uh there's us and a slew of other really incredible dms that are all there we're all learning together yeah it's it's super cool we love doing them and we're going to be able to do them a lot more regularly so thanks thanks for for listening listening and and i'm gonna go arrest some dogs what (laughs) Because the dog did it. Oh my god. You suck.